Well, when we last left the, uh, the embryonic Christian community, they had prayed for God to take note of the threats against them and to grant them boldness. May we continue to speak the word of God, they said, with boldness, while God stretches out his hand to do signs and wonders. And you'll remember the house was shaken. They received a fresh influx of the Spirit. And the fruit of that Spirit's presence is what we see in our text this morning from Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. This, by the way, you'll probably note it, is the second summary description of the early church's life together. But we don't get a lot of these in the New Testament. So when we get them, they're very important. Now, the two descriptions, one's in chapter 2, one's here, they're similar. And they reinforce each other. And they show us just what the shape of the church looked like, right, the earliest church. And they also show us what the earliest church prioritized. So they're important to us. So we'll make the three points. They're there in your bulletin. Unity, gospel, and charity. So first, unity. So we're looking at Acts chapter 4, verse 32. The full number. We have a sizable, right, growing community. Thousands of Jewish believers, right? The full number of those who believed, we're told, were of one heart and soul. Now that's really quite remarkable, I don't think it could be said of the church today. In fact, I'm pretty sure it can. And it's especially difficult, right, to have this kind of unity in a growing, rapidly expanding movement. Right? The Christian church here is like a fire. But it's one heart and one soul. It's easy to create division and alienation in a situation that's fluid and dynamic. It's not stable. I mean, we're we're very good at doing it with stable situations. But this is a dynamic situation with thousands of new believers, and we're told they're of one heart and one soul. And I don't want to glide over that too quickly. Now, now soon the church is going to confront, you know, a number of serious threats to this pristine unity. But for now, this should be seen as the glorious, miraculous thing that it is. And in the text, right, it's expressly linked to what has happened. First at Pentecost, and then with the fresh gift of the Spirit just before our text. So the one God sends the one Spirit, and the Spirit creates oneness. It's that simple. The one God sends the one Spirit, and the Spirit creates oneness or unity. There is, Paul says, right in Ephesians 4, there is one body and one Spirit. So division is almost certainly a sign of a deprivation or being devoid of the Spirit. That's why the church's outward condition in the world is so tragic. Division is a sign of being devoid of the Spirit. The Spirit is a communion-making Spirit. (laughs) So let's talk about 
what the Spirit does when the Spirit is present. We heard this in the Old Testament lesson from Jeremiah. He gives us new hearts. He recreates us. Here's Jeremiah 32. I will give them one heart and one way. So not only a new heart, but one heart. One way that they might fear me forever. For their own good and for the good of their children. So, a regenerated people are, or they should be, a unified people. A new heart cleansed by the Spirit of Christ is a heart that loves the Lord our God. This is not complicated, right? A new heart loves God. Or, you know, it seeks, it aspires, however dimly and fitfully in this life, a new heart aspires to love God with all our being, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. That's what Adam was supposed to do. That was Israel's vocation. That's our vocation as Christians in Christ. And so a community of such people, looking away from themselves to God, to the all-lovely one, will be united. Right? Because they're all oriented to the splendor of the triune glory. Not in word, but in actuality. So they're not, so the other things, what some, a certain political or social or cultural agenda, or even a bunch of second order theological issues, right? Their own idiosyncrasies are transcended if everyone's oriented to the splendor and the beauty of the triune being of God. This is the key to unity in the church. Like, it's not getting people together in a room and see if we can all agree on everything. It's looking to the triune God to see what he will do. A.W. Tozer famously put it this way. He said, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So he continues, this is Tozer, he says, So a hundred worshipers met together, each looking away to Christ, are in heart and soul nearer to each other than they ever could possibly be if they were to kind of, you know, start a unity conscious movement. Right? And, you know, try and stri- let's have a meeting where we strive for closer fellowship. Now, this doesn't mean there was no diversity in the early Christian community. Of course not. But it means they had the same theocentric, you know, Christ-centered ethos. They, to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the third person of the Holy Trinity. It is to have the whole Trinity, the Father and the Son, come and dwell in you. So, again, it doesn't mean no diversity, but it means the same setting, the same fundamental disposition, the same deepest loves, the same deep orientation. They shared one heart and one soul because they had all received the one spirit. The spirit had fallen on them. And the spirit creates unity, fellowship, and communion. Right? The spirit is the sworn enemy of splinter groups. 
So we are called, Paul says this, to maintain this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Right? For there's one body and there's one Spirit. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 4. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Sevenfold unity. So, the great glory and beauty of God himself, who is our vision, right? be thou my vision, who is our end, who is our destiny, God who is our all in all, God who is our portion, God who is our inheritance, God who is our glory, joy, and crown. He comes to you through the Spirit. And what he does is he gives us new hearts and he creates a people of one heart and one soul. That's present in the apostolic community. Now, notice what happens next in the text. It's not the first thing that pops into our minds when we think of the church's unity. So here, the unity or the deep oneness, it might hit a little too close to home. I mean, imagine I were to say to you, imagine I could erase your historical memory for a minute. And I were to say to you, the early Christians, they are of one heart and one soul and blank. You might say, I don't know, one mind. You might guess something. You're probably not likely to guess this. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own. Right? That's a little koinonia and fellowship that's a little intrusive to the American way. Now, I'm going to insert here all the caveats that we made when I looked at a passage similar to this in chapter 2. This is not communism. This is not mandatory. This does not eliminate private property. Our confession of faith, which we'll look at later, says this. Communion with one another as saints does not take away or infringe the title or propriety which each man has in his own goods and possessions. It's clear that what happens here is a free disposal of goods. But it's so important to Luke because he tells us twice in three chapters. Right? Certain people with assets are disposing of them. And that being said, right, Luke thinks this is clearly exemplary. He thinks it's deeply praiseworthy. And he places this radical attitude right alongside the oneness that the Spirit creates. There is unity in, how about we put it this way, there is unity in body and soul and goods. So true oneness then, right? True oneness means a sharp curtailing, right? A sharp correction to the poison of radical individualism. I'm always amazed how people in our circles think and I don't know where this comes from, probably, probably talk radio or somewhere, probably from the media ecosystems that we're in. But they tend to think there are two choices. Radi- I mean, indiv- individual, private individual liberty or collectivism. Collectivism or liberty. L- individualism or collectivism. Those are not the only two choices. 
There's a whole range of choices in between, and Christians have carved them out over 2,000 years. Dozens, actually. But certainly anyone who loves the Trinity knows you don't have to pit oneness against threeness. What's more important, the individual persons of God or the nature of God? You don't have to pick. They interpenetrate one another. So what we need is a Trinitarian economic theory, but we don't have that. We just have screaming back and forth. Notice the phrase in the text, and this gets at it, I think. No one said that the things that belong to him. Now, notice that, right? That's the assertion right there of private ownership. These things belong to this person. No one said that the things that belong to them. So no one's denying any private ownership. They belong to them. No one said that the things that belong to them were his own. Well, that's the paradox, right? That's the part that's missing. That doesn't map to either the American left or the right, by the way. No one said that the things that are mine are mine. That was what the spirit of God created in the early church. It's a spirit-wrought detachment. Yes, it's my stuff, but I don't consider it my stuff. In fact, I'll kill you if you come and take my stuff. So, this is spirit-wrought detachment. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says this, those who buy and sell, this is the paradox again, it, it doesn't really even make any sense at first. You think, how can this be? What is he talking about? He says, those who buy and sell, right, should be as though they had no goods. <laughs> well, how can you buy and sell with no goods? Paul would say precisely. And those who deal with the world, Paul says, as though they had no dealings with it. This Holy Spirit wrought detachment is a gift of the divine glory. And thus here, those who have goods that belong to them should be as if they did not. So what you have here, I would say, is a radically transformed notion of private property. I own this, and I renounce my lordship over my own goods. So oneness here, unity in the church means no one says, no one in the church is saying, my stuff is mine. A common faith, a common spirit, here at least means everything held in common. It's remarkable. Communism says what's yours belongs to everyone. This spirit-induced charity says what's mine is yours. You're welcome to what's mine. I don't count it. Right? There's no grasping here. Just as there was no grasping for or will be no grasping for or hoarding of goods in the heavenly city. You're not going to have to protect your stuff in the eschaton. You're not going to say, I don't want to wander into a bad neighborhood in the New Jerusalem. You don't have, there's no grasping or hoarding here because there's no grasping or hoarding there. But the faith always works back. You should always ask yourself, what will the conditions of the eschaton be? And then, then you should ask, how does that impinge upon the conditions here? 
So there's a, there's a severing here, a subordinating of the earthly, of the idol of mammon, which the Spirit creates and it orients us to the needs of our brothers and sisters here and around the world. Luke says this is a signal sign of unity. Secondly, then, that's unity. I want to talk very briefly about the gospel here in the middle. Look at verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection. Right? They ignore the ban of the Sanhedrin. This is what they prayed for, boldness of speech. And that's what they're given by the Spirit. Right? They are preaching the gospel of the risen Christ, we're told. And great grace was upon them all. Right? This is what the world needs to hear, the good news of the gospel. Notice the preaching, the testimony to the resurrection, the word. It caused great grace to be upon them. The text says they preached with great power and great grace was upon the community. So the apostolic witness and the grace it invokes is noticed in, in this text. Notice this. It's sandwiched between two references to their possessions. Like you have possessions, gospel, possessions. Verse 32, verse 33, verse 34. Like it's striking. Right? The first reference to the possessions I've already looked at, that deals with their attitude toward their possessions. No one called their stuff their own. The next one looks at their actions. Not merely the attitudes, but the actions. The actions the community takes with their stuff. And that brings me to the third point here, charity. So verse 34. Right? Verse 34. It's really important to get the links, the connections between the verses here. Verse 34 should read, for there was not a needy person among them. Right? The word for is crucial. Great grace was upon them for... Because there was not a needy person among them. That was the sign of the grace of God in the community. Right? That the needs of the poor were met. So we've already seen their attitude, right? But now we're going to look more at their actions. There was not a needy person among them, right? This is the New Testament ideal. It's rooted in Deuteronomy 15. Here's the text there. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. You shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Right. So again, it's interesting. Deuteronomy says there shall be no poor among you. This, by the way, was was an ideal which was never realized in Israel. And it anticipates the new creation of which life in the church is a foretaste. Jesus says this, the poor you will have with you always, Jesus says. That's against economic utopianism right there. The poor you will have with you always. You're not going to eliminate poverty. But in the Christian community, which is a signal foretaste of the age to come where no one is poor, there should be no poor or needy among you. So what does this look like then? If that's the case, what happens? Well, listen to this in the text. As many as were owners of lands or houses, people with substantial assets then, sold them 
And they brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. And we'll see, Lord willing, next week, what happens to Ananias and Sapphira when they want, when they want to try and skirt this process. This is how important this process is in the early church. The Spirit in its glory presence is doing this. To violate this spirit of generosity and charity is a sin against the Spirit of God that will cost two people their lives. But that's for next week. Tell your friends. Come back for that. (laughs) Um, So they sell the stuff and they lay it at the apostles' feet. And it looks like this happened voluntarily as needs arose, right? So here the attitude. Remember the attitude first. Nothing that's mine is mine. (laughs) Nothing that belongs to me is mine. Now it becomes an action. I take those assets, I sell it. And so they do what you do, right, when you tithe or when you give to charity. You give up control of a portion. Here it's a large portion of their goods. It's a great liberation to be free from being the determiners and disposers of all of your stuff. The great Puritan Philip Brooks said, and I've never forgotten this, he said, you should think of your stuff, all of your stuff, your great stuff, your excellent stuff, your prized stuff, your family heirlooms, all your stuff. You should think of it as you will come to think of it 20 minutes before you die. That's how you should think of it. So they give up. Their proceeds, they placed them at the apostles' feet. This is probably some sort of public community fund that was administered by the apostles. And we're told it's distributed to each as any had need. So this is a righteous form. And here I'll use a word that, you know, people tend to get all excited about. But I'll I'll use it anyway to be provocative. This is a righteous form of wealth redistribution. <laughs> Wealth is being redistributed, taken from not by the state, by the spirit, by the spirit. Right? This is righteous wealth dist- redistribution. Right? It's voluntary, spirit induced. Look at what Paul says in Second Corinthians. He's citing Israel's gathering of manna in the wilderness. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Do you notice that? Right? Whoever gathered much had no excess. Whoever gathered little had no want. So again, there's no coercion here. There's no confiscation. The church is not seeking to level everyone economically. Some are going to remain wealthier than others, even after they sell their lands. But there is a radical reallotment. Right? There's a movement of wealth that the Spirit does. We saw it in Acts 2. We see it in Acts 4. And so Luke's going to give an example of it. And as I said before, next week there's an example of two people who want the credit for it, but not all of it. So here's an example. Verse 36, Joseph, who was called Barnabas by the apostles. Barnabas is a nickname. People earn their nicknames generally. You know, they do something. It means son of encouragement. And we see him encouraging throughout the book of Acts. The nickname fits him well. But he's, this is the key point for our, our purposes this morning. Barnabas is a Levite, we are told. He's a native of Cyprus, where he and Paul would later preach the gospel together. So he's a Jew in the diaspora, and he's a Levite. Now, 
You should know why that's important, I think, right? Levites in the land were not supposed to own land. And as a Levite, Barnabas would know that land can be freely given up because the Lord himself is our inheritance. Right? The whole doctrine of having God, the triune God, as your inheritance should displace one from their land. Inheritance is a land word in the Old Testament. Canaan is Israel's inheritance. Right? If God is our inheritance, the Levites are like a living sign in Israel to say, yes, the land is a type, a foreshadowing of inheriting God himself in the glory and the splendor of the new creation. So Levites, they lived out the earthly dispossession of goods because God was their portion. Right? It seems like right if you had this Levitical background, like Barnabas does, it would teach you as a property owner, which Barnabas was, he was in Cyprus, he was not in the land. It would teach you to hold on to your earthly goods lightly, with an open hand. And this is how Barnabas lived. He sold a field, we're told. Sold a piece of real estate. Not everything he had. Not all his goods. He sold one field. Now, in this culture, you could give this money away publicly and be recognized as a patron, as a benefactor, and be honored. This is a shame and an honor culture, and that's the way rich people tended to do things. They would, they would take their assets and they would donate them to some public work or cause. You know, you get your plaque on the building or whatever. You get your name on something. You, the people in the community know we did this for you with our wealth. That's still what politicians do. They send you those postcards in the mail saying, look, I got this money for your congressional district. You were able to build that community center and that firehouse and this, that, and that other thing. I can use the patronage system to help you. And this is what the rulers would do to buy favor. It's still what our rulers do, like I said. Your mailbox is full of this stuff this time of year. And this is why Jesus warns his disciples. He says this, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. You think, well, what are they supposed to do? They're kings. What could be wrong with that? Jesus doesn't say the bad kings exercise lordship. He doesn't say tyrants exercise lordship. He just says, look, if you want to look at the Gentiles here, it means nations. So you want to look at the politics of the nations. It's kings with authority and lordship over their subjects. Most American Christians would think, well, what's wrong with that? Somebody's got to exercise the coercive violence of the state. It might as well be us, right? So Jesus says, look, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. They know how to use the tax system. They know how to use money. And then what does he say? You know what he says, right? He says, but not so with you. This is why it's so distasteful to see Christians panting after political power. Well, we, right? Barnabas, so not so with you, he says. And what does he go on to say? He says, if you want to be great, you should take the lowest place, the place of a child. In other words, seek the place of no power. The kings of the Gentiles will seek the great places, the places of authority, the places of power, the places of benefaction, but not with you. That's not what you're doing. 
So Barnabas takes this money and he lays it at the apostles' feet and thus he forgoes any potential social honor for it because he's a Levite and he's seeking greater heavenly treasure. This is why we tithe. This is why we give. Right? This is why we think of our stuff the way we're going to come to think of it 20 minutes before we die. So this is now the second profile of what early apostolic Christianity looks like. And language like this is used in both places. And as such, it remains an ideal or an incentive for us. Not for just, you know, mimicry, but it's a provocation, a holy provocation to us about our own generosity and our own affections. Calvin puts it this way on this passage. He says, We must have hearts harder than iron if we are not moved by the reading of this narrative. If you're you're reading this narrative and you're thinking, well, I'm still protecting my stuff. My stuff is still my stuff. Then you've got a heart harder than iron. To read this narrative and not be moved, Calvin says, is to have a heart harder than iron. He says, in those days, believers gave abundantly of what was their own. We in our day are content not just jealously to retain what we possess, right, but to callously rob others for more. He goes on, he says, they sold their possessions in those days. In our day, it is the lust to purchase that reigns supreme. My goodness, this is before the rise of modern capitalism (laughs) or the consumer society of the West. So let me close by reminding us that the life on display here is not a law. right? It's It's only something the Spirit and the grace of the gospel can produce. Right? Unity and this kind of radical charity are gifts. Right? They're expressions of the communion we have with Christ and the communions we have with one another as saints in the Spirit. So it's important here to see Jesus Christ. Right? He is the one who sends the Spirit, and He's the one to whom the Spirit bears witness. He is the one who is proclaimed in the gospel of grace. And thus it comes as no surprise that it is Christ himself who is the pattern for what we see in the text. This is very important to get, right? Like, it's not like Christianity's got a bunch of principles and rules and one of them is be radically generous with your goods, right? our, Our attitude toward our possessions is a reflection of our grasp of the gospel itself because... Philippians 2 tells us that you are to have the same mind as the non-grasping, self-emptying Christ, who, although he was in the form of God, right, with riches beyond, beyond number, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You're looking for non-grasping, self-emptying, outpouring. It's the economy, the economics of Jesus Christ. This economics is rooted in the economic condescension of Jesus who emptied himself for your sake and became a slave. Right? To the extent that Christians can talk about Christian economics and money and wealth without Philippians 2, that's an absolute tragedy. This text is at the heart of what Christian economics is about. So this, Paul says here, is the pattern we are to follow if we want deep unity and oneness in heart and soul and body. And here's Paul in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, 
Right? Yet for your sake he became poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. Right? So it's Jesus who shows us the way to unity, the way to radical charity. So that we might have no needy among us. Christ became poor. Long before Barnabas sold land or the apostolic church sold land, Christ opened his hands up and refused to grasp the riches of heavenly glory for your sake. Because he wants to liberate you from all the anxiety and all the fear that comes from worrying about your stuff. And so we're willing then, if this is true, we're willing to become not poor per se, but poorer Right? Barnabas is much poorer after he sells the field. But he knows paradoxically that this is the way to enduring wealth and glory. Again, if God is not our heavenly inheritance, and that doesn't have real concrete economic cachet with us, none of this makes any sense. If our treasure, an economic word, is not in heaven but on earth, then this passage is like, oh, that's a part of Christianity I don't really like that much. This is the portrait, though, of the body of Christ in grace and in generosity, right? In mission and mutuality, in word and deed, in unity and in charity. We should let it challenge us. So let the risen Christ, through the Spirit, through the proclamation of the gospel of grace, make us such a community. Amen.